This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and thanks for joining us for your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Today, we're looking ahead to the start of a new archaeological excavation on Hadrian's Wall in northern England. And this summer, Newcastle University and Historic England will be embarking on a major four-year excavation at Bird Oswald Roman Fort in Cumbria. Joining us to discuss this project are Tony Wilmot, Senior Archaeologist with Historic England, who, with Professor Ian Haynes of Newcastle University, is one of the lead archaeologists on the project. Hello. And English Heritage's Collections Curator for Hadrian's Wall and the North East region, Francis McIntosh. Hi there. Well, the first thing to say is that news of an archaeological excavation is always exciting. Tony, could you tell us when and for how long you plan to be on site at Bird Oswald Roman Fort? Yes, we'll be there for eight weeks, starting on the 14th of June and finishing on the 6th of August this year. We'll be talking about how visitors will be able to see the excavation taking shape a bit later on. But for people who don't know, can you tell us a bit more about the history of Bird Oswald? And how does it fit into the wider history of Hadrian's Wall? Well, it's long and complex. Um, Bird Oswald is in many ways the most complicated part of Hadrian's Wall. It's a fort that's associated with the initial construction of the turf wall of Hadrian's Wall in the western side. And later the turf wall is replaced by a stone wall on a slightly different course. So Bird Oswald is the only area where you can see both the turf wall and the stone wall and all the various various installations that go along with it. For the fort itself, obviously it begins in the Hadrianic period and runs right on in occupation to the end of Hadrian's Wall and beyond. Relating to the Hadrianic period, just for people who don't know this part of Roman history, could you sort of set it in context with some dates? So the beginning of the building of the wall is generally considered to be about 122 AD and the fort at Bird Oswald would be built in the, in, in the 120s anyway and then runs on in occupation. Certainly we've got continued occupation in the 4th century and uh, at Bird Oswald, almost uniquely on Hadrian's Wall, we've also got evidence that goes on beyond the sort of accepted end of the Roman period at the beginning of the 5th century and possibly considerably later than that. That's really interesting. So potentially it was really well occupied even as the Romans were leaving Britain. I, I suppose it was one of the last outposts to sort of be properly vacated. Yes, of course, there is the issue of whether they were Romans and whether they left. Because mm. when, when do the Romans leave Britain officially in the history books? Well, the, the generally accepted date for the end of Roman Britain is 410. But at Bird Oswald, there's evidence that occupation carries on probably well beyond that. This is occupation by continued occupation by the descendants of the Roman troops there. It's not a case of a, of a, of a military unit that's actually leaving. These people have been recruited locally for a very long time. They still live behind these walls. They're still, we think, supplied locally, and they remain. And sort of, we think, mutate into a kind of almost what you'd think of as a, a war band in the period of the sort of breakdown of Roman occupation. How does this fort relate to the actual wall then? I understand the fort might have come afterwards. And can you sort of describe it geographically as well? Yes, it's actually a very dramatic setting. The fort sits on an escarpment on the edge of the gorge of the of the River Irving. Very, very spectacular views southwards across that gorge and northwards up to the northern Cumbrian hills. 
with its relationship to the wall, the first wall to be constructed in this area was the turf wall, and the fort was placed astride of the turf wall so that a good half of it lay to the north of the linear barrier with three of its principal gates. The turf wall is then replaced in stone on a different line, and the stone wall attaches to the northern corners mm-hmm. of Bird Oswald Fort. So it basically so it's attached to the wall and lies behind it for most of its history. But this is a process that takes a very short period of time. Constant changes of plan you can see at Bird Oswald, but basically over a period of 15, 16 years, not a long construction phase. And that's one of the reasons, isn't it, Tony, why Bird Oswald is so interesting because you can see, or, and you have with your excavations, learn about that constant change in the plan of building of Hadrian's Wall. And also visitors come today, they can see the fort, but then they can see all aspects of the wall on a very short walk from the fort. It's a really great place to go. You come and see the fort, learn about the really complex history there. You can walk not very far and you see a beautiful stretch of Hadrian's Wall. You see a mile castle. You can see a turret. You can see a bridge. So you can really get to understand the wider landscape, that the forts are just part of a wall and a really complicated structure. That's exactly right. I mean, the Bird Oswald sector of Hadrian's Wall is actually the only place where you can walk along a wall mile and see the mile castles at each end and the pair of turrets that sit between them. And that's a Roman mile, of course, isn't it? That's a Roman mile, yeah. Yeah, which is a little bit shorter than a a modern one. About about 1,600 yards instead of 1,700, yeah. Yeah. In old old money. In old money, yeah. That's really interesting. Um, It it sounds like a very idyllic setting, but of course this was a militaristic uh, site, wasn't it, Uh, fundamentally? Why is it significant today? I think its significance lies in the fact not only that you can see every aspect of Hadrian's Wall in the immediate area, but also the long and continuous history. Once you've got beyond this phase, this immediate post-Roman phase, we do have desertion, but it gets reoccupied again in the uh, in the 12th century. We have the name of a guy who lived there in the 12th century. And from then on, as a farm, it carries on right until the last farming tenant left in 1986. And we started excavating and it became the visitor attraction, if you like, that it is today. So it is a long, continuous history that people, I think, can identify with. It's not just the Romans in the past in a box. There's a continuum that comes right on to today. Am I right in saying as well that it's one of the best preserved sections of wall? Is that right, Francis? Absolutely. That wall mile that Tony talks about that you walk along from Bird Oswald going east, it's a really spectacular section to see. It stands, I don't know how many courses high at the highest. It's, you know, it's above my head. It's really spectacular and it is it's beautiful scenery around there very different from the central sector that's much more rugged and up and down it it feels a little bit more gentle although the slope down to get to uh, the bridge at Willaford is quite steep (laughs) and it makes you realize that when you see the bridge at Willaford how far out the river is now shows you the change in the landscape between now and the Romans. These forts as well, was the Bird Oswald Fort, this community that existed just south to the wall, was it one of the bigger forts along the entire stretch? Yes, it was. It's one of the forts that could hold an infantry unit of a thousand men. So a pretty significant military installation in that particular area. Yes, it's the same size as the rather better known fort at Housestead, for instance. And I suppose from a geographical perspective, that's understandable because it's, I think on the map, it's kind of nearly halfway along, isn't it? If you go look left to right on the map. 
Yeah, we can make that very clear. We talk about wall miles, and Bird Oswald is in the middle of wall mile 49, and there are 80 of them, so it's, it's, it's slightly west of the central point. The forts are pretty much regularly spaced. There are 15 of them, and there is a, a regular scheme of spacing. Bird Oswald is in a particularly strategic position because it dominates the river, the River Irving, and the Roman bridge crossing the River Irving. It is on a point of potential weakness, if you like. It is slightly off its sort of the regular spacing in order to cover the river, which is also the true at the fort at Chester's. But it sounds like it occupies a kind of, as you say, strategic point in supply lines as well, because you've got a bridge and you've got access via a river potentially, so that helps with supplies. Yes, not only that, but also, of course, the road northwards runs from Bird Oswald up to the outpost fort at, mm. at Bewcastle. So it is, a, if you like, a bit of a communications hub. Okay, so we've established quite well there the sort of history of Bird Oswald Roman Fort and the significance of it, both at the time, why it was built, and also why it's significant now and how it has been in that intervening period as well, after the Romans left Britain. Let's talk now about this uh, archaeological dig. And I gather, Tony, that you were involved in a previous excavation at Bird Oswald in the 1980s and 90s, so you're pretty familiar with the turf. Where did this take place, this excavation, all these excavations in the 80s and 90s? Yeah, this was between 1987 and 92. They took place immediately in front of the farmhouse at Bird Oswald. The farmhouse sits in the northwest corner of the fort. And we excavated the principal west gate, the ditch of the fort, the two granary buildings, an exercise hall, a workshop. And then later, we excavated a couple of barrack blocks, actually under the farmyards of the farm. And that was in 1997-98, when okay. the current visitor centre was created. So when you're in the visitor centre, you're actually sitting or standing over Roman barrack blocks. But the whole of the area of the northwest corner of the fort we have now excavated. And, of course, the area that we took in front of the farmhouse, this very big area with these granaries and the, and the principal gate, is the main area which is laid open and consolidated and, and open to visit. The stuff that you worked on back in the 80s and 90s is now visible. It's sort of come out from underneath the earth. You can see the masonry and that sort of thing. Yes, it's, uh, it's all consolidated and, and laid out. We've got uh, information panels out there as well. In fact, I go there now and I've, it's weathered and it's got covered in lichen and huh. it looks like it's been there forever and it makes me feel very old. And of course, you only just discovered it really quite recently. Yeah, <laughs> I only dug it up in 1987 to 92. You snuck in there, Tony, that you found an exercise hall or a drill hall. I did. But that's really something that's hugely significant, I think. Can you tell us a bit more? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a number of things about it. Well, one of them is how we found it, of course. But I'll talk about the thing itself first. It is a very unusual thing to find in a Roman fort. In fact, so far across the whole Roman Empire, it's unique. It's a unique discovery. Although we know that such things existed from Roman authors. Vegetius wrote that buildings like basilicas were erected for exercise in wet and windy weather. And of course, there's no shortage of that at Bird Oswald. But uh, yeah, it was the first one to be discovered. And it was a completely accidental find. When the visitor centre was started, we only had one toilet facility. It really had to be um, updated and uh, made more spacious, if you like. And we excavated within the farmhouse, the room that was going to be used as a toilet. And we found 
the base of a pier sitting on a wall. Then we carried on excavating for a new septic tank, and there was the wall with a row of piers on it. It's quite obvious that what we, ha- what we had was a sort of colonnaded hall, big colonnaded hall. We've managed to look at other areas of it and um, confirm that it is this enormous great colonnaded hall. It is actually like a Roman basilica. I'm sort of trying to imagine this colonnade with these columns. Yeah, um, Think a church. Think yes. a church. Two rows of columns, a nave in the middle and two side aisles. But that's quite an impressive thing, isn't it? And of course, it's all disappeared now. Actually, in, 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 in the um, late 16th century, 1599, antiquarian visitor Reginald Bainbridge visited the site and said, the inhabitants showed me where the church did stand. And I would bet my bottom dollar they were referring to this building. Because so it you... would look like a ruined church. It would look like a ruined abbey in the landscape. So what, what, uh, what do you think happened to these columns? I mean, I say column. They're not, they're not actually columns. They're, they're, they're built they're built columns. They're more oh, like okay. here. So they're, they're built of masonry rather than being a circular column. So do you think they were they were carted off and formed part of other buildings eventually? Oh, yeah, absolutely. If you go down to Lanacos Priory, just um, to the west of Bird Oswald, it's an 11th century priory which is entirely built of Roman stone. Mm. And we know that a lot of that stone came from Bird Oswald because there's a Roman altar recording the unit that we know came from Bird Oswald actually built into the wall there. That's fascinating. So there's a Roman history in churches potentially uh, in the north of England, you know. Oh, gosh, yes. And every, every farmhouse. <laughs> yeah, exactly what I was just going to say. Every farmhouse, every dry stone wall. In fact, if you look at the farmhouses, dry stone walls, churches and castles along the line of Hadrian's Wall, they do look different in terms of their masonry to those, you know, similar structures north and south because they are made of recycled Hadrian's Wall. They are Roman stone, Roman masonry. Francis, I understand that there was also this other excavation in 2009. What was the purpose of this one and what did it reveal? Well, so this was another excavation led by Tony alongside a team of students and Professor Ian Haynes at Newcastle. And this was a joint kind of research and rescue excavation, I think you'd say. Tony's mentioned the River River Irthing that's on the south side of the fort and the fort sits on that escarpment. The River Irthing's a bit of a menace, I think we could say, in (laughs) terms of erosion. And in 2009, it was realised just how much of a risk this erosion posed. And the cemetery for the fort, or one of the cemeteries at least, was known to be southwest of the fort in ploughing. A farmer in 1959 had turned up to pretty much complete cremation urns as well as a tombstone. And so we knew where the cemetery was and it was really at risk. So English Heritage took the decision that, you know, we couldn't underpin this cliff, but it was going to go at some point. So a 12 metre wide strip was identified as being kind of the most at risk. And excavation is in its nature destruction. You're taking archaeology out of the soil, but you're recording it. So what this did was it was removing that archaeology and recording it before we lost it. It was a great chance. I was I was there as a as a lowly student helping <laughs> helping out and um trying to cook jack potatoes in the Arga for our thirty undergraduates. Um <laughs> and it was really exciting because it was a chance to excavate a cemetery on Hadrian's Wall. And that doesn't come along very often, as Tony and as all the other archaeologists on the wall will tell you, most of the excavations that have happened on Hadrian's Wall have been in the forts. So it was really exciting. What was the main finding then? 
1959 and then also a small excavation in 1999 by Time Team, there'd been some cremation remains found. Most of the Time Team excavations were 3rd and 4th century, but we were digging in a different area, weren't we, Tony? We and were, yeah. we know a cemetery has been used for a long time. Was there, you know, similar activity? And what was found was more cremation evidence, but really varied. So there were burials of all different types. Some were simply a pit dug into the ground with a handful of burnt human remains in. Some were, you know, lovely stone-lined pits with the remains put into ceramic vessels, maybe with another ceramic vessel next door. Some we found something called a bustum, which is where the burning takes place on site and the burnt wood and the the human remains fall into that pit. So a real a real range and the pottery that was dated by colleagues down at Historic England in Fort Cumberland was all late and first and early second century pottery. So what Tony and the team there were excavating was a different period of the cemetery to what had been found previously. Right. There is another aspect, of course, to the cemetery, which is talking about the mix, the sort of ethnic mix that exists along Hayden's Wall. The tombstone that was ploughed up in 1961 commemorated one um, Cossertius Saturninus, who was from Hippo Regia in North Africa. So we have one of our African legionaries. He was from the 6th Legion. And one of the cremation vessels, which is actually on display at the hospital, you can, you can see it in the visitor centre, has in it a little piece of chain mail within the, within the cremation vessel. This is very puzzling. It was a, a female cremation. It's, the bone could be sexed by our colleague down in Fort Cumberland, and uh, it's definitely a female with this little bit of chain mail in it. I've been looking for 10 years for parallels to this, and the only parallel I can find is a culture where females were cremated and buried, and the cremated remains put in pots with chain mail, little squares of chain mail. But this culture, which is contemporary for Bird Oswald, is in uh, southern Poland, a long, actually outside the Roman Empire, a long way away. Now, there is no reason why someone from that culture should not have ended up within the Roman Empire, coming to Britain and ending up mm. being buried at Bird Oswald. No reason at all. And actually, the remains, the cremated remains, are currently awaiting analysis in an isotope laboratory to see whether we can put any further data on that see whether this uh, lady is in fact Polish. <laughs> That's really interesting. Yes, Francis, we've discussed in a previous podcast on Hadrian's Wall perhaps a couple of times, I think, about how sort of international and how far flung from various areas of the Roman Empire people could come once they've been sort of subsumed into Roman culture and then put up at Hadrian's Wall. That's right. Hadrian's Wall is a real, a real melting pot. One of the famous groups of people, I think, of Edelsold are the Dacians from what is modern-day Romania. And Tony's also excavated and found evidence for a group from Frisia, which is kind of the modern-day Netherlands, Germany. Mm. So just at Edelsold, you see really how complex. And it's not, you know, Roman soldiers from Italy by any means interacting just with the native Britons. It's, yeah, it's fascinating. The more you find out about the people who lived in and around the wall the more you realise that complex nature of it. Mm. So on display from this uh, excavation in 2009, uh, can you tell us what we can see in the Bird Oswald Museum? Yeah, so um, 12 complete or partial urns were lifted during the excavation and sent down to the lab, and we chose five of those for display, which kind of told various aspects of the story. And one of those urns is the lady that Tony mentioned. Another really interesting aspect of her burial is she seems to be buried 
in relation to a, a small child who's mm. maybe around five years. We don't know what that relationship is, but they're buried respecting each other. And we have the urn that the lady was buried in with some of her grave goods in the pot. We have the pot and the tooth from the child that allowed the osteoarchaeologist to age the child. And then we have a couple more of the vessels to give a bit of a an idea of what was found there, really. And then we also have a case which highlights that really important period of the end of Roman Britain and how Bird Oswald kind of lives on. A lovely copper alloy gilded pin from the 8th century and also a coin from the Byzantine Empire from the 6th century, which just again shows that the connections are still there even later on. And that coin travelled a long way, didn't it? It did, it <laughs> did, yeah. You know, work at one of our other sites that's very famous, Tintagel, shows how Tintagel was so well connected right through until later, you know, into the early medieval period. And there's more and more evidence that that Western side of Britain continued to have links with the Byzantine Empire. And Bird Oswald's maybe just one of the, those northern places. Yes. And just remind us where the Byzantine Empire was in modern day parlance. So the Byzantine Empire was what had been the eastern half of the Roman Empire when the Western Empire of Rome fell, which Britain was part of, the Byzantine Empire continued. So it was its capital was at Constantinople or Istanbul. Right. And it covered so areas. Yeah. Modern day Turkey. Yeah, it's where it was centred around. And it continued right through officially until the 1500s, I think, didn't it? Well, this moves us on until this summer, obviously. So we've uh, done the 80s, we've done the 90s, those digs then, and we've done the 2009 excavation. We're coming to this summer. Archaeologists descend on, on Bird Oswald again. What's the objective this time, Tony? As Francis was saying, you know, the, the, we, the cemetery is way beyond the fort. A lot of excavation has been done in the fort itself. But around the fort is a large extramural settlement, a settlement beyond the walls of the fort to southeast and west and actually to north. And we've got a very good handle on the phasing and the dating and the different changes that occur within the fort. But we don't know how those changes are reflected in the settlements round about. So the idea this year and for the next uh, three years after this is to examine areas of these extramural settlements, these settlements around the fort, in order to see how their dating and phasing relate to that of the fort itself. And indeed, to establish, I mean, they generally refer to as civilian settlements. We think they are occupied by dependents, traders, people of that kind outside the fort and serving the fort. They're certainly part of the fort community rather than being a, a separate thing. And we are looking to find basically further understanding of that and how long they last. There's a general idea that these settlements were abandoned in the uh, in the late third century, but uh, that comes from a number of pieces of evidence, but very disparate evidence. I think we have a chance of seeing whether that is true of Bird Oswald. And there are other things as well. For instance, in the eastern end of the Hadrian's Wall, in between the wall itself and the ditch to its north, there have been found the remains of uh, all these holes which would have held additional obstacles, basically like sort of fork branches set into the ground as an additional defence. We're going to examine the space between the wall and the ditch at Bird Oswald to see if this far west, the same thing applies. And this is going to be very important in understanding more of the, uh, of the function of Hadrian's Wall. And then we have a, a, one of the buildings that we're looking at, one of the things we know about where we are, is a building that was first found in, in the 1930s, 1931, 
and looks like a tower. It may even be a watchtower predating Hadrian's Wall from the previous frontier. But this is described in a single sentence, and um, the investigation of it was prevented by rain and the ingress of water. So we're going to be taking a pump with it. Well, it sounds very exciting stuff. And you're literally and figuratively breaking new ground because you'll be in new areas that have not been looked at before. Yep, that's right. So that's quite an exciting prospect, isn't it? Very. (laughs) (laughs) I'm really, I'm starting to look forward to it now. The arrangements, the organisations have been fairly tortuous, but I think we're on on the home straight now to actually start enjoying the project itself. Francis, are you going to be on site helping out at, at times? I will come and visit. I'm, I'm not an excavator, but we'll definitely be coming along to visit because it's such a wonderful chance, really. It's so rare to have an excavation on one of our English heritage sites and to have it at Bird Oswald in my patch with the potential for so much exciting discoveries is wonderful. There's nothing quite yeah. better, I think, than the sound of sort of breaking earth and then sort of like the tap, tap, tap of various implements on on masonry and finding things, you know, just sort of scraping, all those scraping sounds, you know. There's going to be lots of toothbrushes, washing pottery, hopefully, as well. And um, there's going to be environmental sampling with a tank going on. So people will be able to see all aspects of that work, you know, not just the digging. The digging's the first stage, isn't it, Tony? Yep, absolutely. The businesses will be able to see the excavations in progress, of course. And we'll also, as Francis says, be looking at the finds processing area, and the environmental processing area. So all the products that come out of the excavation and the processing of those products will be visible for visitors to see. I do understand that this project is a three-way collaboration between Historic England, where you're from, Tony, Mm -hmm. Newcastle University, and English Heritage, where Francis is from. So how did this triumvirate, shall we say, from using the Latin Latin word, word. uh, (laughs) Latin-derived phrase, how did this come about? I suppose it sort of developed organically, really. As Frances said, um, we did have a group of Newcastle students, including herself, on the excavation in 2009, again led by Ian Haynes, who's going to be leading with me this year and in the next three. This was an extremely successful partnership. I've subsequently worked with Ian and Newcastle University on a training excavation at Maryport, so that was not with Historic England. It was a, a sort of separate project. But Newcastle were needed a training excavation. There is that great interest in Hadrian's Wall from Newcastle University, of course. The study of the relationship between the forts and the extramural settlements is a major research priority generally within the sort of research framework for Hadrian's Wall. And these aspects all come together. So Historic England, Newcastle University will be jointly funding the excavation which will be facilitated by our colleagues in English Heritage. We're using their site and their facilities after all and uh, of course you know we do all know each other so it's a friendly collaboration as well. Yes and everyone's interested in what is going to be discovered and uh, I'm sure everyone will be sort of sharing their insights and yes there will be some interesting discussions. We've mentioned that this is actually just the first stage of a four-year project and this summer is the first phase of that so can you tell us what will happen over the next few years in collaboration with Newcastle University English Heritage Historic England? So this first year we'll be looking at the extramural settlement on the eastern side for the next two years thereafter 2022 and three we'll be examining the western side and in the final year in 2024 we'll be looking at the um 
settlement that geophysics has shown on the north side of the fort, which is, of course, north of the linear barrier, north of Hadrian's Wall. Mm. So this is going to be very exciting to look virtually for the first time at settlement from a fort actually extending to the north of the linear barrier. This is How far out will you look from the actual wall for that northern side? It's only about 100 metres. Okay. At the maximum. But still, it's in Barbaricum, isn't it? You know, it it's certainly north, is, yes. It's north yes. of the Empire, we've got to remember. Yeah. Not north of well, the Wall. <laughs> well, yeah. of course, there is that zone north of the Wall, mm. which I'm sure was considered to be part of the Empire. And mm. there are outpost forts, as I said, the one at Bewcastle, which the road out of Bird Oswald leads to. This could well be roadside settlement associated with that road, which would be incredibly interesting. We'll find out in the next couple of years then. What excites you both about the project and working on this whole thing and and what it might turn up? It's the usual thing. You know, it's the buzz of archaeology. You know, it's, as you said earlier, it's going into unknown areas, finding out new information about the site. It never stops. I've been doing this for 50 years now and uh, you never lose that feeling. In some respects, it's a bit like the start of um, Star Trek, isn't it? Seeking out new life and new civilizations from from different layers of history. Yes, and boldly going where no man has gone before. Breaking new ground, as we said earlier. What what about you, Francis? What's inspiring about this particular Um, dig? Well, I think for me, it's the fact that we've got, you know, live excavation that we're going to be able to show, you know, the visitors and help the visitors understand how complex... Hadrian's Wall was and you know that's what we try to get across sometimes or all the time showing our museums and our panels and on the volunteer tours to show you know it's not just about the soldiers the areas that Tony and Ian and the team are going to be digging in is potentially where the more normal people lived Mm. not that soldiers aren't normal but you know people who aren't soldiers who are going about their everyday life they're making things they're using things what evidence are they going to find of that kind of everyday life the non- Mm military life i think and it's great for visitors to be able to come and see that absolutely and and to understand it's not just the fort and that hadrian's wall is not just a line on a map no lastly about visitors how can visitors come and see what you're doing can they get quite close can they come and chat to the archaeologists um yeah so there's going to be two tours a day that will be bookable. So when you book your tickets, obviously nowadays everyone has to book tickets to come to visit sites. And when you go on to book the visit to the site, you can book your tour. And English Heritage volunteers will give you a tour around the fort that you see. And then they'll take you across and um, there'll be a baton exchange <laughs> or a visitor exchange. And um, the students and the team there will give a, an explanation of what they've been excavating, what they've found so far. So that will be twice a day and it'll be bookable. Plus, you'll be able to come and see the finds room where hopefully, you know, all the pottery and the other objects that are being discovered will be being cleaned and processed. And we'll be doing some updated interpretation as we go along, you know, what they've been finding recently. I'm envisaging CSI style, you know, mm-hmm. whiteboards. <laughs> and then also something that people don't maybe see very often is the processing of the environmental samples, which is actually quite an undertaking. And that's where we find out about you know, we get evidence of seeds and of the smaller animal bones, perhaps, and maybe evidence of metalwork in these small bits of evidence that sometimes get lost in the soil, but the soil is sieved and picked through, and it's a real huge mine of evidence for life yeah. at the fort and outside. Real archaeological action taking place. Well, I wish you both the best of luck 
with the dig and over the next uh, three years as well. And I hope you get um, good finds and good weather. Yes. Definitely. Latter. <laughs> You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. If you'd like to find out more about Bird Oswald Roman Fort or to plan a visit, please go to the English Heritage website. Next week, we'll be back ahead of Father's Day to discover what family life would have been like for the Darwins at Down House in Kent. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>